Welcome to our discussion segment on the USS Enterprise. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. And today we're talking about the Grey Ghost. Let's get started. Hey, John. How's it going? Going great, man. Good. Obviously, I really enjoyed this episode. You always do. Uh, there are a couple ones made. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, <laughs> No, I, I was intrigued because this is the first time you've ever, or that we've ever covered a ship, something so yeah. specific. And I wanted to ask you, what what was the, your reason for choosing this ship? Good question. Because it's so famous, the name is instantly recognizable, not just to Star Trek fans, but to students of history. It's the most decorated ship in uh, American military history. It played a crucial role in the Pacific War, and it was, at one point, the only carrier we had fighting the Japanese. So it was kind of the Enterprise versus Japan, as, it, as we said in the podcast. So I thought that would be an interesting topic. And it's something, I mean, carrier operations, we see it in movies like Top Gun, and we have this idea of what it's like to live on a carrier, but we don't really know a whole lot of the specifics. So I thought that would be an interesting way or an interesting topic for us. I agree. What was life like on a World War II aircraft carrier? Very, very crowded. I mean, more than anything else, you've got about three to 4,000 people crammed onto an area that on paper looks very big. They're about 900 to 1,000 feet long. But in all of that space, you have to get all the equipment that you need for the ship. You have to get all the stores that you need. So you had very, almost no like personal space on board these things. There's the constant threat of attack, especially early in the war when the Japanese had submarines and warships all over the Pacific. There was always the chance that your ship could be torpedoed. And it was, in a lot of ways, very similar to World War I-style warfare, where it's moments of sheer terror that punctuate weeks and months of boredom aboard wow. ship. In terms of this particular ship, the Enterprise... Its war record was, to put it lightly, impressive. Oh, yes. Unsurpassed like, yeah. in American history. How was that possible? How was... And I understand that she was damaged a lot, and yeah. they fixed a lot, and she kept having upgrades, but in terms of, like, we read about all these ships that were sunk, either from torpedoes or dive bombers or fires or mm -hmm. whatever. What was so special about the USS Enterprise? A lot of it was who was commanding her, especially in the first six months. It was Admiral Bill Halsey, and he was by far the most aggressive naval commander in the entirety of World War II in either theater. And he saw the Enterprise as his primary weapon to go out and attack the Japanese in the immediate aftermath of Pearl Harbor. So she saw so much action in those first few weeks and months after Pearl Harbor that she started to earn this reputation as being the Grey Ghost, because she would appear and disappear seemingly out of nowhere. She was also incredibly fast. And so she was able to move and, and strike very, very quickly and then disappear with a destroyer screen and with her fighters covering her retreat when necessary. So to talk about Admiral Halsey for a second, what kind of man was he? Like you talk a little about him and we, we get a sense of kind of who, who he was, but if mm -hmm. he was sitting across the table from us, what kind of conversation would we have? Probably very profane. He was kind of the naval equivalent to General Patton in World War II, believed in you know telling it straight, telling it fast, wanting his soldiers to understand the seriousness of what they were doing, very focused on duty, on the responsibility that weighed on his shoulders during the war. And from what I've read, and I've read a couple biographies of his, not a whole lot of introspection. A lot of military commanders, including General Patton, they had their public image and then they had kind of their private image. Also true of General Sherman, who we talked about earlier in the season where the public image is the cigar-chomping, hard-charging leader of men, but in private, very introspective, very willing and able to reflect on what was going on in the wider world. Halsey was not that way. He very much was 
focused on the job. He didn't worry about anything else. He didn't worry about, he was concerned for casualties, obviously, with his own men, but he was so focused on doing his job and winning the war that everything else just fell by the wayside. And so if we were having a conversation with him, it would all be about the war. It wouldn't be about his personal thoughts, his feelings, his reflections, his drive to defend the country and his hatred of the Japanese is what really drove this man during the war. Mm. So back on the topic of aircraft carriers, mm -hmm. in, in terms of World War II, how important was long-range power? When we think about mm -hmm. the battleships and their long guns, think about fleets. Usually when people think about the Pacific Theater, they think of Iwo Jima, they think of uh, troops and... The Marines kind yeah, of going in, like, yeah. yeah. Very few people think of aircraft carriers. They think of the battleships and Maybe, all that. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Why, why was the aircraft carrier so integral in our advance? Quite frankly, because it allowed whoever owned the aircraft carrier to project power far at a far greater distance than you can with a battleship or a destroyer or a cruiser or a submarine. Aircraft carriers could launch planes. Obviously, that's what they're designed to do. And those planes could strike two, three, four hundred by the end of the war miles out whereas a battleship could only fire a shell about 14 to maybe 16 miles. So you have a much greater chance of reaching out and hitting your enemy with an aircraft carrier than you do with a battleship. And there was a great deal of debate before the war, kind of in the late 20s and the early 30s, as aircraft technology is progressing so rapidly within the naval establishment, not just in the United States, but in every major country, over, well, are these kind of just pretty little toys, or do we actually want to use these as kind of the new center of our fleets? And ultimately, the aircraft carrier won, and it was demonstrated in World War II. The battleships basically were, once they were refitted and made fast enough that they could keep pace with carriers and smaller vessels, they were relegated to kind of shore artillery support. They would sit off an island like Iwo Jima and blast the enemy positions, but they didn't engage in ship-to-ship -ship combat very often. Far more enemy ships were sunk by American air power than were sunk by naval power, by naval guns. Hmm. Why was the USS Enterprise so effective against Japanese aircraft carriers, Japanese battleships? What made it so different? Because when, when you were teaching us about this, mm -hmm. it was evident that this thing just kept going. I yeah. mean, she was severely damaged many times, but she just kept going. And what, what was the difference between the USS Enterprise and the Japanese fleet? Part of it was her crew. They knew how to handle the ship quickly, efficiently, and in a very deadly manner that allowed her to inflict so much damage and to know when it was time to get out of there, to pull back, to make repairs, things like that. There was the group aboard the uh, construction battalion, the Seabees. They were the ones who repaired the ship, sometimes in the middle of a battle. So you would have planes taking off the decks, and at the same time you would have these men running around, not soldiers, but just they were running around with tools, patching holes in the flight deck, repairing various instruments, various uh, parts of the ship that had been hit. And they were just utterly fearless. And they received a presidential unit citation, and I think some of them even won at least the Navy Cross and possibly the Medal of Honor because they were utterly without fear in the face of the enemy. So you have the power of the crew, the fact that she was one of our first purpose-built aircraft carriers, whereas most of the Japanese carriers, they would kind of just cut the top off of a battleship, put a flight deck on her. Really? And yes, and that it made the Enterprise a little bit faster and a little bit more sturdy because you didn't have, like for example, the battleships turned carriers that were used at Pearl Harbor. They had these support beams specifically coming out the front to hold the flight deck up. And those are very easy targets to hit. 
And if you hit them, then the planes have to fly a shorter distance. They have to get off the deck sooner to be able to make it into the air. You lower the number of planes that can be taken off and can be in battle at any one time. And our pilots knew exactly where to hit those struts. And at Midway, they were hit, I think, on three of the four carriers that were sunk. So that's just one example of just the skill of the crew and the, the way that she was designed. And then lastly, it was a lot of luck. I mean, the Hornet and the, I believe it was the Saratoga. Yeah, the Saratoga. They were, they were of similar designs, but they just got caught in very bad situations. The Saratoga survived the war, but was not nearly as effective because she kept getting damaged. She would always be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then at, I believe it was the Battle of Santa Cruz Islands, the Hornet was just overwhelmed and was destroyed. Hmm. When we hear about ships being scuttled, why was that a practice? How did that work? I'm just, just kind of a side question there, because historically we hear about that all the time. Yeah. So I think you said it was a Hornet, right? So it was the Yorktown that was scuttled at Midway, along with some of the Japanese ships. Basically, it's so they don't get captured by the enemy. It was it's to deny the enemy access to your secrets. They were either built in or you would very quickly lay charges basically along the keel at the bottom of the ship, and they would blow outward and then allow water to rush water in and the ship would sink. Yep. The German battleship Bismarck, famous for its breakout into the North Atlantic earlier in the war in 1941, earlier relative to Pearl Harbor, was scuttled. She was being attacked by, I think, 20 or 30 British warships, and the shells were basically still bouncing off of her, even as the ship was in flames. And it was the German crew that ultimately scuttled the ship, not British warships that sent her to the bottom. Interesting. Yeah. So the Battle of Midway, historically, that battle is mentioned a lot. Oh, yeah. It, so, it was the turning point in the Pacific. Yeah. Why was it the turning point? And what role specifically? So you, you talked a little bit about how the Enterprise uh, served in that battle. Mm-hmm. Like, wh- why, why was that battle so pivotal? And how did the Enterprise's role help with that? Uh, it was pivotal because the Japanese lost four carriers in one day. And four out of their six major fleet carriers, the, the large ones, they had smaller called escort carriers or light carriers. But the six fleet carriers were really the core of the Japanese Navy, and they lost four of them at wow. Midway. So two-thirds of their ability to project power into the American part of the Pacific. That was the main reason why it was such a turning point. And it was amazing that it came only six months into the Pacific War, as opposed to the two turning point battles in Europe which happened in 1941, two years after the war began when Germany attacked Poland in 1939. It was shocking how quickly America was able to kind of turn the tide against the Japanese. Now, as far as the Enterprise, she was the one launching specifically dive bombers. You had torpedo planes that would basically fly parallel to the ocean. They would drop their torpedoes, and then they would get the heck out of there. And then you had the dive bombers that would fly directly down towards the enemy ships into much more gunfire at the time. They would release their bombs and they would pull away and try to get out of there. The Enterprise pilots were mostly dive bombers. They had a few torpedo planes, but the dive bombers were the ones that set fire to ammunition caches and fuel tanks that were on the decks of the Japanese carriers. So they dealt the death blow, I think, to at least two or three of the Japanese carriers Mm. in that battle. There's also one interesting thing about Midway. It's war-gamed out pretty much every year at the Naval Academy, and almost every time... America loses that battle. Really? Why yes. is that? You had to have a precise series of events happen all at the same time. You had to have the Japanese launch their first attack at Midway itself and not at the American carriers. You had to have the Enterprise squadrons basically get lost and then happen to find the Japanese just as that first carrier strike was coming back to rearm, reload. You had to have the Japanese basically make a mistake in not looking for the carriers before attacking Midway, because Midway's not going anywhere. They should have gone after the carriers first. 
there's a series of like five or six events, which if they don't happen in exactly the right sequence, America loses that battle. And they lose at least two, possibly three of the carriers, including the Enterprise, that wow. were present at Midway. Wow. It's pretty, it's pretty incredible that we were able to pull it off. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So in terms of Japanese tactics, there's a lot of discussions around the kamikaze mm -hmm. pilots and that tactic would just ram your plane in a ship of some kind. How effective was that tactic? Did it cause the sailors any loss of morale? Was it psychological? What did those accomplish? Well, it was certainly effective if you hit a ship in the right place. And I mean, the Enterprise's last battle, she was hit at one of the elevators was right. hit and basically that took her out of action. So... It was effective in an individual ship level, but by 1944 and early 1945, our shipboard gunners were so adept at shooting Japanese planes out of the sky that most kamikazes didn't actually make it to their target. So they loaded their planes up with bombs and, and explosives, and not even, in many cases, they didn't even put any guns in them because they didn't have the ammunition or really the, the guns to put on the plane, and they would just fly them off as, as flying bombs. And the Japanese pilots were very willing to do that. that their, their culture and their religion taught that, that was the, the sacrifice of the nation or sacrifice for the nation was an honorable way to die. But it didn't, I mean, early on, it caused some morale issues. But more than anything else, I think it enraged the American sailors who would see, not their comrades because they were enemies, but young men who were just like them, basically sacrificing their lives for no reason. By 1944, it's very clear that Japan's going to lose the war. There's nothing the Japanese can do about it, but they just, they kept on fighting. And these Americans can't begin to conceive of how the Japanese wouldn't just, just quit, just stop. It's, it's very clear you're going to lose the war, surrender and save your lives. But that's not how the Japanese military code of the 1940s would allow their soldiers and their sailors and their airmen to operate. In fact, too, I mean, there are stories of soldiers who have gone on I forget the name of the island, but where they would find Japanese soldiers oh, who yeah. were still embedded, who mm -hmm. were still in, entrenched. In the 60s, 70s. Yeah, yeah. And just like 10 years later, 20 years later, who were still, quote, fighting the war, mm -hmm. who would not surrender. Yep. You have to respect their dedication oh, yeah. to the cause, I think. So the Americans respected the name Enterprise. We looked for her. We had pride in her. We were encouraged by her, her awards, by her accolades. Did the Japanese learn the name Enterprise? Well, they certainly did when they were in, in battle with her. And they came not to fear the name, but to certainly respect that ship and to do everything they could to sink it. I think she was hit nine or ten times by kamikazes at various points throughout her career. And certainly she was targeted whenever a battle would begin. If they saw a carrier, they would, they would try to, you know, looking at the silhouette, identify, okay, that's the Enterprise. We're going to go for that one. Even as there are, you know, eight or nine other carriers in we the Pacific fleet. We want the Enterprise. Fleet, we want that ship. Because the Japanese understood the importance of trying to winnow down and break American morale. And that's what they thought the kamikazes were going to do. That's what they thought the initial attack on Pearl Harbor would do. That yeah. was a huge miscalculation on their part. Did it hurt their morale when they couldn't sink her? When they couldn't take her out? I don't know. I've not read an account written by anyone who was present at any of those battles. A, a Japanese account where they said, you know, we were disheartened or upset that we couldn't sink okay. her. I mean, ultimately, it is just a ship. And even though ships do carry with them a sense of legend, they were more concerned with winning an entire battle or an entire campaign yeah. than going after a single ship. Yeah, I always think about it like in terms of perception, like being called the Great Ghost, you would automatically associate that with like 
success level oh, yeah. achievement. And they were frustrated they couldn't find her in sync. Or that was, there was frustration right. there, yeah. And so over time, if you find that you can't sync this thing, sometimes even if you don't really realize it, you mm -hmm. start to believe, okay, this ship is here. Oh, crap. Yeah. This is going to cause that's, a problem. That's certainly true. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of her being, quote, retired, unquote, mm -hmm. which is not the greatest story. No. Why did that happen? Like, when, when we think about a ship of her record, about what she went through, about what she accomplished, why was she not turned into a museum? They tried. There was a preservation society formed. But by that point, we were deep into our, you know, into our decommissioning process. We were scaling back the military. The Cold War has not really started to heat up yet, and so there's not really a call for surplus warships to be pressed back into service. She was also, I mean, no disrespect to the ship, she was obsolete at that point. Yeah. The, uh, the larger Essex-class carriers were able to launch planes at a much more rapid rate. They could carry more. But there was an attempt to form a preservation society to try and keep the ship, and the Intrepid and some other World War II-era carriers were saved. And I do kind of wonder, and I don't know why, they chose to save later carriers that served, you know, in 43, 44, 45, and didn't try to save one of our original carriers, the Enterprise. And I don't know why that decision was made. Yeah. I would love to, instead of going to New York and seeing the Intrepid, seeing the Enterprise. Yeah, but. same here. So the next ship named Enterprise was a nuclear-powered. Yes, first nuclear-powered carrier uh, in history. What does that mean, nuclear-powered? I'm sure there's a lot of people in our audience who understand that, but what, yeah. what's, what's the biggest advantage to a ship having that power source? It doesn't have to refuel. Ever? Ever. Okay. Well, as long as the nuclear materials are still there and it's decades, if not centuries, is how long it would take for all of that to decay. So the ship is it's basically going back to a steam-powered ship, but the steam is generated by a nuclear reactor deep in the bowels of the ship. So the nuclear-powered Enterprise didn't have to go into port to be refueled like you would with a diesel or an oil-powered ship. So all the space that the fuel tanks would have taken up was now filled exactly. with other equipment. So the ship could inevitably stay out a lot longer. Oh, yes. The Enterprise would only come into port, and all of our other nuclear carriers, they only come into port for repairs of other systems. It's never to, and maintenance of other systems, it's never to refuel. Okay. Yep. How many ships now are nuclear-powered? All of our carriers and I think all of our subs are nuclear-powered. And I, we may have, I think maybe the new Zumwalt-class destroyer and a couple other kind of futuristic-looking warships are nuclear-powered. I'm pretty sure the Russians are the only ones who ever built a nuclear-powered traditional surface ship. It was the Kirov-class battlecruiser built in, the, I think, the 70s and 80s where they put a nuclear reactor on there, but we didn't go that far. Gotcha. Yep. So it seems like at the end of the episode, you specified that there will be another ship named Enterprise. There will. One of the new uh, Gerald R. Ford class carriers. How much larger will that ship be compared to the first Enterprise? Compared to the first Enterprise? Yeah. Oh. Like if you were going to compare one small yeah, yeah. thing and one big thing. It's about, I think, about 200 feet longer and a little bit wider. And it has a smaller crew, actually, than either the original Enterprise, original carrier Enterprise or the nuclear-powered Enterprise. Because of some new developments in automation and things like that, the ship is able to, to operate with a much smaller, relative term, uh, a smaller crew of about 25, 2,600 people instead of three to four. And I think the Enterprise, nuclear-powered Enterprise at her height had almost 5,000 people. It was a little small, you know, floating city, mm. basically. Interesting. One final question for you. Okay. What caused you to choose a Star Trek quote to start <laughs> this? And why aren't we talking about Star Trek more? That's a follow-up uh, question. Yeah, yeah. It would be interesting to do kind of a history of science fiction and to talk about Star Trek's role in shaping our vision of the future. Because basically, 
after 1964 when the cage was created and then 67 when the show premiered, you have a divergence of the optimistic and the pessimistic view of humanity's future. Star Trek basically defined the genre of optimistic science fiction, but that's a whole separate issue. Maybe we'll get to that in season three. I don't know. I picked a Star Trek quote for a couple of reasons. One, I thought it would be fun to just kind of throw the audience for a loop by having a, a, a Star Trek. <laughs> You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> yeah. And then it's a reinterpretation or it's a, it's a redo of another quote, I think from Shakespeare about fate protecting something. And it's it's a nice little little nod to the pop culture heritage of the name Enterprise. Yeah. And I mean, the Enterprise name was not just confined to naval vessels. I mean, the first space shuttle was called yep. the Enterprise. Didn't actually go into space. And Gene Roddenberry was furious about that. But that's a whole separate podcast right there. <laughs> I really like the last line in the episode, just in terms of, and history will surely not forget the name Enterprise. Yeah. I, it, it really gave me chills, to, to be honest. Something so, such a powerful ship, such a historical ship, so much so that the Navy wanted to carry on, yeah. wanted that name to continue on. Yeah, I have to confess that I stole that also from a Star Trek episode. I wasn't going to bring that uh, up, but I'll let you. <laughs> but I will say that yesterday's the, Enterprise. Yeah, the, the first part of that, you know, names, when it comes to the Navy, names carry with them the legends of ships that came before. That was mine. Yeah, but, credit where it, credit is due. Yeah, and it's very true. I mean, ships are named for people or for places, and they carry with them just kind of an aura of, you know, this is a ship named for a president, or this is a ship named for a state and all the people in that state kind of they're cheering for us yeah as we're uh, as we're out protecting the country so i, th- I thought there was that would be a way to to kind of wrap up the podcast and to pay homage to both the ship and to my favorite tv series yeah, well it worked thank you for joining us in our discussion of the uss enterprise i'm joe parker and i'm john streeter be sure to leave us a review wherever you hear this podcast it really does help thanks and see you all next week